Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Alex? What the fuck, Stables? What the fuck, Oberry Fins? What the fuck, Minister Fowers? What the fuck, Nux? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you. Thank you for coming by. Thank you for sticking me in your head. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a great show today. Denny Tedesco is here. Denny Tedesco. How can I explain Denny Tedesco? Well, he's the son of Tommy Tedesco. Tommy Tedesco was one of the greatest guitar players in the world, one of the great studio musicians, one of the great Los Angeles studio musicians, a, a, a master. And, and most people don't know who he is or who the studio musicians he played with are. They're known as the Wrecking Crew. And Denny, Denny has been working on a film, a documentary about his father and those session musicians, Hal Blaine, the drummer, genius, Glenn Campbell, guitar player, to one of dozens, it seems. But he's been working on this film since July 1996. Now, this all, this, the, the, this crew of musicians, this was in the 60s, late 50s, almost up until the 70s, maybe a little in the 70s, can't really remember. But this, this film has won awards at dozens of, of festivals. But the problem that Denny's been having since 1996 is the film has over $500,000 in licensing fees. And that scared off potential distributors. So, so between donations and a Kickstarter campaign, Tedesco was able to pay off the licensing for the film. He now has a finished cut, and he's sharing the film with audiences at screenings and festivals as he tries to get it distributed. It's like a lifetime journey. But uh, that being said, if you live uh, in or around Arkansas, he'll be showing the film at the Fayetteville Roots Music Festival on August 28th. But you, I mean, you, this is one of those movies that just blew my mind when he showed it to me. I mean, these guys, this crew of musicians, I mean, who he, they played behind everyone, the fifth dimension, the association, the beach boys, the birds, uh, the captain and Tennille carpenter share the chipmunks, Nat King Cole, Sam cook, the crystals, Bobby day, the defenders, Richard Harris, the righteous brothers, Elvis Presley, Harry Nelson, Wayne Newton, Ricky Nelson, the monkeys. Dean Martin, the Mamas and the Papas, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, Jan and Dean, Johnny Rivers. Oh, my God. The Ronettes. They worked with Phil Spector, Simon and Garfunkel. They were on Mrs. Robinson, Frank Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra, Sonny and Cher. I mean, it is insane. The Ventures. They did the Hawaii Five-O theme. It's just crazy. And it goes into the whole transition from the uh, 
the sort of jazz pop age into rock and roll and the and and the shift uh, of of the focus of the music and how these musicians adjusted to it it's a brain bending documentary and it's this it's denny's life work to honor his father and he gave me one of his father's solo records a self uh release solo record it's just it's amazing just amazing it's amazing talk about an amazing time about an amazing bunch of musicians that are really like unsung heroes they made the music that that is in our, you know that some of it is indelible it, it's in, enmeshed in our memories in our in our in our minds forever it, it was fascinating to me moving on into tonight's episode of Marin. tonight's episode of Marin is called the joke i directed this episode and i came up with the story for this episode i i don't i don't know if you know exactly how tv writing works but we all break stories together me and the crew of writers and then we break them down we figure them out beat by beat and then someone goes and writes it duncan did a great job with this episode duncan birmingham uh based on the story of uh i go on tv i go on the conan o'brien show i'm doing panel and i'm just talking you know riffing a little bit doing some material and we're just improvising spontaneously and i do a joke and it hits me in that moment that that didn't feel right and then i get off of the conan and i get home and i realize like i don't know if that was my joke if that line was that my line because it just came out spontaneously during a little uh, conversation but it's really a, a story of, it's one of comedians biggest fears it's so stigmatized it's so horrific the idea of it it's a real comics uh episode about me accidentally doing someone else's line on television now the truth of the matter is is this happened to me and it's been sort of stuck in my heart for years it was repressed for years the the events of the day that this happened to me it was in 1997 i was doing conan o'brien now at that time i i only did panel we only did uh, the sit down talk stuff now the reason that i remembered this and the reason why the episode exists is because well look quite honestly i had repressed this memory completely and somebody sent me a link or something to a YouTube video of me on Conan. Now, this video was also on my website. All, all the Conans are there. They're still there. So there's a YouTube video of me in 1997. And the, and the top of it, it says, you know, Mark Marin steals from Bill Hicks. And I'm like, what? That's ridiculous. And I watch this video and I'm watching it. And as I'm watching it, my guts just start churning. And my heart just drops almost out of my ass. And it was like a wave of horror as if I were remembering child abuse or molestation. It was this repressed memory where I felt just, you know, filthy and violated and awful. And like I had done something horrible or something had been done horrible to me. But all the events of that day came back to me. It was it was really one of the worst days of my life. It was horrific. It was look. One thing I've never been accused of in my career, and that's being a thief. You know, I've been on Conan 50 times, 50 some odd times. I've put out four or five CDs. I've done specials. I, I am hypervigilant to the point where I barely talk about anything else but myself out of fear of, of crossing streams. Now, obviously, there's parallel development. There's parallel thinking. You know, shit happens. We're all drawing from the same pool. But it's every comic's biggest fear 
to do someone else's joke by accident in any context. And it happens. But it happened on television. And it was one of those things where, man, like when I saw that YouTube thing, I was like, oh, my God. And it all came back and I, and I haven't been able to even talk about it, but we went ahead and, and based the episode of Marin on it. I directed it, as I said, and I had to get it right. I had to get the emotions of it right. Well, what happened in the real event was I go to do Conan. Now I, I talked to the segment producer, Frank Smiley. We go over what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to do my smoking stuff. I'm going to do some other stuff. So you kind of lay it out. And then I get out there with Conan and I do my shit. I'm doing my smoking bit, and then I tag it with this line that I improvised, Yeah, and it just came out of my mouth. Now, at that point, it was one line. You don't want to be one of those people that's you know, smoking through a trachea hole saying, uh, I still enjoy it. That was the line. You don't want to be one of those people, and the emotion is smoking out of a trachea hole. You know, I still enjoy it, and I just done my bit about lungs whistling or whatever. But I did it, and in that moment, I felt like, ooh, that, I felt something jerk inside of me, you know? So I get done with the set, and I get in the limo, and I'm driving home, and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God, I don't think that's my joke. Now, I didn't know whose it was, but it just didn't feel right. I know it came out of my mouth, and I thought I thought of it in that moment, but it didn't feel right. And I'm in the limo home, and I'm like, this doesn't fucking feel right. And I get home, and I'm like, I'm, I'm almost positive it's not my joke. And, you know, I freak out. I'm like, that just came out of me. It's not my joke. So I call Frank Smiley, the segment producer of Conan. And I say, dude, I don't think that one line, the trachea hole thing, I don't think it's my joke. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I'm worried about it. You know, I don't know whose joke it is, but it doesn't feel like it's mine. I don't think it's mine. I'm going to do some research. And he's like, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. I'm like, yeah, dude, is there any way you can cut it? And he's like, you know, I don't think so. Let me check. And I'm like, fuck. So I'm spinning around. You know, I'm living in, you know, I'm living in New York City with the woman that became my first wife. And I'm freaking out. I'm screaming. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I don't know whose joke it is. And I start poking around, you know, other guys who did, you know, who do smoking material. Now, you know, obviously I was a Hicks fan, but I went out of my way not to, uh, to listen to him too much because he did have a contagious sort of cadence. And I, you know, I think he was an influence on me, but you know, at that point he'd been dead for a few years and, and you know, whatever was embedded in my head, what, look, I'm poking around trying to figure out whose joke it is. And I come upon the uh, Hicks record. I think I listened to a CD and there's the line and I'm like, oh my fucking Christ. So now I'm freaking out and completely because it was a complete accident. It happened in an improvised moment, but it happened. It is what it is. So I call Frank Smiley up and I'm like, dude, it, you know, it's a Hicks joke. It's a line that he did. You know, it's one line. Just take it the fuck out. You got to take it out. All right. And he's like, I can't, man. It's too late. And I'm like, God damn it. And I remember hanging up the phone and the woman who became my wife, Kim, is there. And I'm like, I'm fucking finished. And I'm screaming. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? How did this fucking happen? And I'm fucking breaking down. And I start crying in my fucking living room. I'm crying because of this thing, this accident. I did this line. I'm crying. And I'm like, I, I have to quit doing comedy. There was nothing I could do. I have to quit doing comedy. She says, that's ridiculous. I'm like, you don't even get it. You don't even get what's happened here. I fucked up. I did some other guy's line. She's like, so, and I'm like, you don't get it. And I'm, and I, and I just start crying and I didn't know 
what to do. I didn't know how I was going to go out and, you know, and face other comics. I didn't know, you know, I just, I could not, it was unfathomable the experience of, of how deep and how awful and how fucking ashamed I was about that mistake, about that accident. Cause I didn't do it in my act. It was just stuck in my head somewhere. I liked the joke, I guess. And it popped out, you know, after my smoking bit wasn't planned. And I didn't know what to do. And I, I just, I had to go on with my life, but I was, you know, I was shattered and, and horrified and, and guilty. Uh, so, so deeply felt so deeply guilty and ashamed that I did not manage my mind properly. And no one said anything, you know, and I was high. I was just completely ready to be taken down for like probably over a year just to be sort of like, dude, what'd you do? You stole a joke. I'm like, it just never happened. No one called me on it. And the fact is I didn't steal it. It was genuinely an accident. It wasn't like I was taking chunks of material. It was just this accident. It was a line that my brain registered as something I liked at one point and and I tagged with it and, and you know, and, and, and there was no putting it back. It was fucking horrendous. And I've never talked about it. And this is the first time I've even talked about it because this episode is on tonight and I wanted you to know that it was based on this horrifying, horrifying event in my life that, that literally feels worse than any childhood trauma that I may have been through. It, it feels worse and it, it, it still feels horrible that I did that one line by accident in 1997. And I'll tell you after that, I, you know, hypervigilant, always hypervigilant. We all are, but the shame is still there. And I think that really this tonight's episode, it was sort of an attempt to, to sort of make it a, a, a common experience, at least with other comics, or an exploration of this fear, an exploration of an event that really happened emotionally, but somehow some looking for, I guess, to forgive myself, because Jesus Christ, I've had a hell of a career since then, but it just stuck in there, because it was, it was, it was on me, and, uh, and that's, that's what happened. And that's what tonight's episode of Marin is based on. It's called The Joke. And uh, it was a very important story for me to tell. And this was a very hard thing for me to talk about. Even though it's almost 20 years ago, it was one line, but it just... And it was completely an accident, but it just stuck. It stuck in my heart. And it was... I, I tell you, man, the, the shame of the mistake is still there. Like, I should have, should have been able to... Fucking, you know, just horrifying. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed 
page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Fine. Yeah, so Patton reaches out to me, and he's like, uh, Patton Oswald, he's like, you got to talk to this guy, Danny Tedesco, and I'm like, I got to get up to speed, man. Right. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't uh, about, you know, not wanting to do it. It's just, I, I had such a limited understanding of what the Wrecking Crew was, and I knew it was these these guys, right. and I knew your dad was, uh, you know, uh, Tommy Tedesco, and, and but I had no real, you know, you got to put it into context, but it really oh, just, yeah, but it came down to just watching the movie. And and it's oddly, I just watched uh, I watched the Muscle Shoals movie, right. and then I watched your movie because Pat Buckle sent it to me. Right. But there was this constant flow of you. You got to talk to it's, Denny. You got to talk to Denny. It's like, like leave me alone. Yeah, I was like, all right, all right. I mean, I just got you know. Th- this seems like a big topic. I know. It's like he's dying. He, it's his. You know, it's his bucket wish. Yeah, right, right. But no, but it's, it was sort of like it's. They knew it was up my alley. Right. But I mean, to really, to really sort of put it into perspective you got to watch the fucking movie yeah 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 no absolutely no it, and the thing is it's like when uh pat was we we're trying to do it uh as a live screening too uh-huh. you know, that's even more fun is when you watch it with a lot of people but it's just it's it, well it's interesting to me that you know just as a kid you know you're growing up in this thing yeah. so you grew up in in la yeah what with the valley yeah and kid. and your dad is this like I remember seeing Tommy because I play guitar so yeah. like from, from as a kid I'm buying Guitar Player magazine. Well, that yeah, exactly right, right. And and Tommy Tedesco was always on the cover. There's always an article right. about Tommy right. Tedesco in every fucking guitar magazine. Yeah, and he was one of those repeat guys. Like yeah. you know, he had it was a Hendrix Page and you know Tommy Tedesco. He yeah. was he was always that guy, yeah. the the jazz you know the yeah. session dude. Yeah, and they always I remember pictures of him. But I just had no context, you know. Right. And then you watch this movie, and it was funny because I, I talked to this. I can't remember who the hell it was. I said I was going to talk to you, uh, you know, because of the documentary. Right. And he says, "Oh Jesus, did he finish that?" See, that's the problem I'm having. <laughs> that's the thing, man. I started this 17 years ago. My right. dad, my dad was, uh, you know, he basically dad got sick in '95. Yeah, and it, you know they gave him like a year. I thought, oh, I better jump on this. Yeah, and. My concern was it was going to be my biggest regret in life is not doing that, you know, yeah. telling his story as well as the others. So I started it, and that was 17 years ago. Right, because there's all this video footage that clearly I was like, is this historical footage? Or hey, well, that- shoot this? <laughs> this was shot on like Betamax. <laughs> three quarter. Yeah. I had three quarter. I had every format except uh, IMAX in this film. Yeah. I mean, I was three quarter inch well, video. I had this- eight millimeter. But that footage, I bought that eight millimeter footage from the 1950s my mom shot that yeah oh really 1952 with you dancing around in those party scenes no no no, i'm not that old no my dad uh in that band the first band he ever played with. oh yeah 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 it's bizarre well 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 let's frame it up so you know we sort of we we sort of move through it i mean when you were a kid 
you know, what did you know about your father? I mean, like, he, he was he, he just a, a guy that he was a because the, the interesting thing about the film is that in all of them, yeah, Hal Blaine, your father, and you know, I don't, I, I, I don't have the Carol name, okay, Plaz Johnson, yeah, all yeah, those guys, yeah. they were working for a living, yeah, that the, the pr there was no pride invested in the fact that they are on more hit records, right? Then, then, and we'll go through the list yeah. if you have it in, yeah. in the top of your head that this group of studio musicians was on. So many hit records, you know, from the fifties all the right. way up through the sixties, yeah. that no one knew about. But their pride level was sort of like, I don't give a shit. We were making it, money. Exactly, exactly. You know, you you nailed it. It's like my dad. You know, he's coming out. You know, these guys are now they're in their early eighties, so they're yeah. coming out of World War Two as teenagers. Yeah. So they're you know depression kids. They're my god. My dad's getting paid to play guitar. Yeah. You know, he was happy as can be. Yeah. You know, so. You know, they were, you know, you asked me what it was like growing up as a kid, you know, dad was dad. Yeah. It wasn't a good, you know, I didn't see my dad play guitar at home until the 70s. And really? I'm, and I'm born in 61. So they had this sort of working class mentality exactly. around being a musician. They all had their cabaret cards and they all were in the right. union yeah. and they would show up for work. So what were like, because the, let's start sort of at the beginning. Yeah. The, where, what, what, what record label were they all at? Was it oh, all they capital? Were they were different. See what? No, they were all different because what happened is, and it was basically the wrecking crew. I mean, it's a term that's loosely used. Um, these guys got the the name much later, but these guys are, let's say, in the rock and roll at the beginning, the early '60s, yeah. late '50s. Rock and roll is really not a commodity that everybody's right. you know really into. Right. Other labels. Yeah. So what they did is, and we only had one track in those rec recording studios. So they would, didn't trust the recording groups to make these things because they didn't want to spend money on studio time. Right. So they would put these studio musicians in to take the place of bands or record with the singers, whatever, and they knock it out. So what happened is all these different labels, it was after uh, the studio system when they used to be, like certain guys were with on contract with, let's say, NBC right. or whatever. It was after that. Okay. So they're freelancers. As band members. Whatever you want to call them, yeah. yeah, they're they're not a set band, right? That's the but thing. But what, what would a musician be doing under contract for NBC? Uh, orchestras, right? You know the shows, and, you know. and back then, popular music was orchestras. Yeah, like you know, it was coming out of like um, you know, big band, exactly, and, and, and like you know, any you know, TV starting up at that point, sure, too. sure, right? So they had theme music and they had Radio, that background right. music, and they, but it was always a big group back then. Like if yeah. you were in a band, even just for to show up for a dance thing, right? There was Twenty guys, yeah, yeah. So okay, so that. So that system breaks down. So you got all right. these freelance musicians yeah. around, and so the studios or the labels would contract out. Yeah, basically, a guy, a producer would get a job. You know, he's like, "Hey, you got a new this guy, this act. We're going to go cut a single." So it's all singles business again. At but that this point. is back in the days, you know, of Sinatra, Nat and Cole. Like, yeah, you know, early sixties, late fifties, right? So there's no. Well, real, those guys, I'm sure, had bigger, you know, bigger bands. Yeah. But it seemed like early on, your father and the, and the people that were involved in what became known as the Wrecking Crew. You know, pop music was more jazz based. Exactly, exactly. Now rock and roll starting to see, you know leak in. Now what's going on in there is how these guys are getting their breaks because my dad in at six nineteen sixties thirty, he's still kind of moving into this. Yeah, rock and roll. The older guys aren't going to take it. Yeah, not because they're some of them. Yeah, it's bullshit music. It's a pride too. thing. It's a pride thing, but also it's probably it could have been non-union. Yeah, it could have been a, a demo date. Yeah, it could have been you know low scale whatever. But the new guys, they're going to take a chance like all of us. We always take that chance and get in the gig. Yeah. Well, once they got the gig and once they became hits like Phil Spector hits, it's over. Now yeah. they're in. They're their first chair now in that group. 
Right, but but also it seemed to me that in listening to them, and I don't want to get too yeah, ahead yeah. of the game, was that was that they not they didn't necessarily think they were in. No, the, no, no, no. The, you the, never. You, right. All so, of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Is that well? So where did your father come from originally? Niagara Falls, New York. Niagara Falls. Yeah. Have you been there lately? <laughs> oh, f- please. You have people there still. I hope so. <laughs> I hope they're still listening. <laughs> but don't you have Canal. family still there? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's rough. It's rough, dude. I, like it's, I, I it's, performed there recently. That town, the American side of oh, Niagara it's, Falls, it's, it's depressing. Yeah. Like I did a joke about oh. it. I said, you know, by the time you get through that town, you hope the falls lives up to what it's supposed to do. Oh, you absolutely. Wanted, you got to fight the urge to jump over the fucking edge. Oh no, it's it's got folks in Niagara Falls. You know, I love you, but we all know. The problem is, you know, when the my parents, both of them, they grew up and they went to Niagara Falls High School. They met in high school. My uh-huh. mom and dad. Uh-huh. That was in the forties. It was popping, hopping there. Oh, I mean, everything was like great. boom, boom, yeah, boom, yeah. boom. The hotels. Oh everything. yeah, and you know, and it was like. But the problem was the industry, uh, you know, corrupt politicians. I mean, they're yeah. everywhere. But yeah. these guys were good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, they decided to destroy everything downtown. We're gonna re, you know. I can't, what's revitalized? I can't remember the term. Well, they never rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And then the companies with all these chemical companies just polluted the land. I want in, but if you look across the river, you see Canadian side and it's like hopping. It looks like little Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to do a documentary, The Honeymoon's Over. <laughs> you know. So, but your father was on the GI Bill. Did he go to yeah. war? Well, no. <laughs> no, he was, he was, uh, uh, he went, he was drafted, but uh, they were him and his friends. Now you got to realize Niagara Falls is a bunch of Italians, and um, fortunately for them, they got all uh, sent to uh, Niagara Falls. Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> they were basically. Yeah, yeah. and um, it was uh, it was like uh, not Phil Spector, um, Phil Silvers. Yeah, they called it. It was just like that. Sergeant Bilko. Sergeant Bilko. Yeah. I mean, they they were just connivers. Anything to get out of work. <laughs> but it seemed to me that from the documentary that your father came to guitar late in life as yeah, well. Yeah, well, he that was. I asked my mom and I were back east a few months ago in Buffalo. They were honoring him at the museum, and I asked her. And the first time I, I said, "What happened?" Was they went to a prom, like mm-hmm. a senior prom in college or something. They were invited to a prom, and my dad went, and uh, my mom and. Someone said to him, hey, the big band, the Ralph Martieri band's losing their guitar player. And someone said, I know a guitar player. And I recommended you. Do you want to? Try? They said, well, have him try out after the dance. And he tried out. And the next thing you know, the next day, he's driving to New York, driving across country with his big band. Yeah. Now, and he gets to Dallas. Whose big band was uh, it? It was a Ralph Martieri. It was okay. Big at the time. Yeah. So he, you know, he's going from Littletown, Niagara Falls. Now he's going cross country. He's doing the Hoagie Carmichael show in, at the Palladium in Hollywood and doing all this stuff. And then he, they're going to Dallas and all of a sudden he gets fired with uh, the lead singer um, because they, he, Ralph Martiri, found someone that could play guitar and sing. Oh. So he knocked out a guy, you know, yeah, a yeah, part yeah. of his, you know, salary. Yeah. So my father, being a, you know, small town, you know what it's like is. I don't want to stay here. He went and got my mom and moved to L.A. That was that. That was it. What year? 53. But my question to my mom, I said, did dad work a lot? I thought, you know, was he working clubs and jazz days? She said, no. She says, he had maybe a casual, you know, once a couple weeks, maybe twice a month the most. Yeah. Yeah. She says, he almost didn't go to the dance because he and his trio got a gig in in, uh, Pennsylvania Uh for a weekend. Uh Uh-huh. And he said, I'm not going to the dance. I got a job. And she says, you got to go to the dance. I've spent $35 on this dress. 
So that dress for $35 changed my life. If he didn't show up for that dance, yeah. he would never have the chance to be a guitar player. That's, oh. Isn't that bizarre? All right, so he comes out here. Like, you know, I just, I'm, I, it's like with these type of, uh, of interviews, like it's such a, a broad swath of, yeah. of, of history. So, you know, Tommy Didesco, he comes, in, he comes out to L.A. So I thought what was great about the documentary is that they were all very clear that at some point everyone was going to come out here. Yeah. That this is where music was. This yeah. is where it was. Done. You know, it was, it was leaving New York. The yeah. real building, that shit was over. Yeah. And it was all coming out here. So all the great players were moving. Everyone was moving here For to make a break. the 60s yeah. Yeah. So these guys, your father, you know, he didn't know any of these guys. No. You know, so when did that start? How does that start? Well, what happens is like, all, like you, you know, like you guys, you yeah. know, you start hanging out at the clubs. Right. You know, you start meeting people and that's what he would do. They would do jam sessions, sit in. You know, at first he thought, oh, just put in a resume for right. a studio musician. You don't yeah. do that. Right. No one gets a job that way. And yeah. that's what it was. You just sit in and someone would say, hey, man, can you sub for me next week? Like Peggy Lee, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or whoever was, you know, like Howard Roberts gave my dad a break with Peggy Lee. Howard was a phenomenal jazz guy. And he said, hey, can you sub for me? Yeah. Now, my dad subbing for Howard was like he was shitting bricks. Yeah. Because Howard's like the guy, the king of chords. And, you know, he's a guitar player's guitar player. Right. So he always told the stories. So when I'm playing with Peggy Lee, he says, I start playing and we're playing and about a minute in, she goes, hey, who are you? And thinking, oh God, I'm, sh- I'm in shit. Yeah. And she says, I like him, yeah. you know, because what he was doing is plain simple. Yeah. Because he couldn't play the shit that <laughs> Howard could do, you know. But it was that kind of, like, you kind of break in. So when when he started, uh, well, so where does he meet? Who? How does this crew, you know, come together? I know they all just work together. but They you start know, slowly, and I think Phil Spector. Is that where it really started to define itself, like early on, yeah. like he did Peggy Lee sessions? What other yeah. sessions did he do? Uh, well, in those days, early six, uh, early six, you had the Phil Spector dates. Um, I mean, the Chipmunks in the late fifties. Yeah. He did know. the Chipmunks. Yeah, yeah. But all, anything you know, singers, you know, any singers at the time that were doing like Bobby Darin. Yeah, uh, we did Wayne Newton, but that's a little later. You know, Don Shane and all that stuff. He's on those. Yeah, is and, he on Mac the Knife? No, oh. no, I think that's New York. Oh, okay. But like, it, it, so he was just showing up for these gigs, and they put together the band. And yeah. you know, the, well, the contractor puts together the band. Basically, the producer says, so he's got the producer's got the job. Hey, you know, Bobby Darren hires someone. He hires a contractor and says, okay, you know, he calls Hal or Earl Palmer or whoever, and then you know starts putting the rhythm section together. Whoever's requested, right? And then he just, you know, they all show up. They don't know who's on the date. Well, but it's interesting because it was all done, you know, by reading and by, you know, by these were just, you know, go-to guys. They were professional players. They didn't necessarily yeah. operate as a unit. Not at all. But 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 they over, worked so much, it felt like a unit. Oh, but over time, yeah. they did develop a rapport. Like Absolutely. they, uh, because you can't, you know, have that kind of connection. Like the bass player, Carol is her name. Yeah, Carol K. What an interesting fucking person. Yeah. I mean, and it, it was interesting to me that like y- you don't get. You know, you got a little backstory, obviously, your father yeah. and of of how, yeah, in terms of you know what ultimately happened to them. Yeah. But you know, she suggested a past where it's sort of like, where's the rest of that story? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some <laughs> deep shit there. There is, yeah. And it, phenomenal the fact that she starts off as a guitar player, but that's it. And also, she's a woman. Yeah. Well, and, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the fact was that that also that in her story, you know, there were a lot of women musicians in in the big band a bit. There was in a, the big band, right? The, you know, the string players and yeah. this and that, but not in in those. In the, like you said, the jazz thing. There were some guitar players like Mary Ford and all yeah. those people, 
But in her position as a well becomes a bass player, what's extraordinary to me, and this was where I give all of them credit for yeah. Carol. Carol's in a, when they right, so let's say the, if you're going to put a group together, yeah. let's say a week you got a week rock and roll band, right? All right, the first one that goes is going to be the either the drummer and the bass player, right? Because they, they got to keep the band going, right? 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 So for Carol to be in that group, let's say whatever to replace someone, yeah. She's not there. She's not a tambourine player. She's not a percussion player. She is driving the band. Yeah. As well as the drummer. Right. And that's where I go, that's why she's there as a musician. They didn't look at her as a woman. They looked yeah. at her as a bass player first. And, yeah. You know, so I give them all credit for that. They yeah. gave her a lot of shit. Yeah. But she gave it back. Right. And also when she's just riffing, like, you know, when you see, like, you see, like, however old Hal was, uh, uh, you know, on drums. Right. You know, uh, and, and then when she picks up a bass. And what was that bass line she played that oh, she came um, up with? Uh, well, she came up with... Uh, uh, Wichita Lyman that opening with which is right gorgeous yeah yeah, yeah. And, they, and that they had this this capacity and the beat goes on yeah and the beat goes on yeah. to improvise you know and they they all sort of knew each other because I, I realized that with the Muscle Shoals uh, guys too but they were a tighter unit right but you know that the core group with you know Hal and Carol and your father and, and Glenn Campbell Glenn Campbell Leon Russell Leon Russell um you know, Don Ran names. yeah Don Randy I mean they're just who's that other guitar player the character the, Al yeah. Casey? Yeah. Is There's it? Al Casey. Bill, oh, Bill Pittman. Yeah, Bill Pittman. They called him King Salt. <laughs> yeah, why? Because he was so... Rah, 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 rah. He's salty. He, yeah, yeah. And it, Hal would say about him was, you know, the greatest thing was um, he didn't like anything. Yeah. He was a true old guy. He was jazz like a, guy. J jazz guy. True yeah. jazz guy that really hated rock and roll. And, they, you know, he would say shit off camera, like off camera. He'd be in the studio and he'd open up the music and go... God damn, same old shit. Yeah. And and how was it? Bill, <laughs> the mics are on. Shut up. <laughs> it's like, dude. And the thing is, he was very honest, but unfortunately, sometimes too honest. Yeah. You know, and you know, what you're talking about is no different than the comedians. You go to work, if they're going to give you the lines. Yeah. All right, that's fine. Do you want me to improvise? Yeah. I'll, let's improvise first. If you don't like it, we'll go back to the line. And yeah. that's what my dad did. Yeah. He says, I play for smiles. Yeah. If the, you know, I'm going to give him what I think is right. If he yeah. doesn't like it, fine. Let's do do what you think. Right, right. It could be wrong. I think it's stupid. Right, but I'll do it. I'm yeah. getting paid. It's also fascinating to to just realize that because this is it's 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 new to me in in the nuances of it. You know, obviously I always knew there were studio musicians, but when you really right. see like yeah, you know, the Wrecking Crew or the Muscle Shoals guys that like they were the they were the ones that made the hits. Yeah, that it wasn't like even the 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 Phil Spector stuff. I mean, when when you show when uh, some of the footage of them working on that. Yeah, when there's like fifty people in the fucking studio. Yeah, and they're there. They're like and Phil, and Phil Spector would work them till they were exhausted, right? Just no, and, basically, and, and and some of the guys were you know would get pissy, yeah. You know, and and my father said, I don't give a shit. As long as you keep paying, I'm gonna stay here. <laughs> I love that. That's the angle that you because we all have so much invested in the personalities of rock and roll, you know, like because yeah. I grew up with it, yeah, so, exactly. So you know, you 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 invest in the personality of the performer, the guitar player, of like you know, like oh that lead, this yeah, lead, right. and that lead, and then all of a sudden you find out like holy shit, the Beach Boys didn't do anything. Yeah, you know well, the they, birds, yeah, right. You know the birds didn't. Do, well, they did well the birds them. did the they didn't do the first one, the Mr. Tambourine Man, right? And that was again. That was the culture of rock and roll, or not rock and roll, but uh, music. record music right. in the record business. Right. And what happened there was Terry Melcher, who was uh, Doris Day's son, was the producer, and he did um, 
whatever. Also famous in the Manson story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very I good. think where we, we, we it was uh, his house where Sharon was killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so um, is he still ter- around? No, he passed. Which is a you know, there's a few of those people that I spoke to but never got to before they passed. Uh-huh. It was a drag, but he um, he was hired by Columbia to do this group birds and he said all right fine but i'm bringing my guys in right and they were all pissed off the birds he said well i'll use um roger mcguinn because he can play guitar and yeah. he can sing so it'll be a somewhat of the birds and you guys just sing in the background so all the guys were pissed off they don't show up so he's got hal blaine on drums uh bill Pittman, king salt uh leon russell on piano and i want to say larry nectal was on bass and jerry cole another guy and they knock it out. And like Roger McGuinn said, he said, we did the A side and the B side in three hours. Yeah. He says, when I got to, when we did Turn, Turn, Turn with the actual Birds group, it took 77 takes. Yeah. Still a number one hit. Yeah. But it's just, but- It was Terry, efficiency. It's efficiency. But Terry said, if we don't get a hit, we don't get another chance. And then if I'm going to go in there, and it's like a budget again, we're back to, you know, what it is. It's a reality of budget. And my father always said, "Hey, you got music, and you got the music business. Sometimes they mix, not always." Well, you know, you your relationship with your father. Obviously, you you know, had a, you had a lot of time with him. Yeah, and you know, you went into uh, into movies and television. That was your yeah. thing. But early on, as a kid, did you go down to the sessions? Did you? No, never. No. Uh, he was uh, re- you no. Know, occasionally, the, the earliest session I remember was Green Acres. And the only reason I remember that day, it was like one of those that's it. And the reason I remember it was because I think it was like five mm-hmm. and we were going on vacation or something. And so we all went to the studio and dad, we were all going to leave after that. Mm-hmm. You know, dad was going to do his gig with his, when we leave. And I just remember Vic Mizzy, the wonderful composer, you know, you know, conducting throwing his hands and hips up and all that. And I just remember laughing because that's the funniest thing to see a grown man throw his arms up, not yeah. knowing he's conducting. Yeah, yeah. But that was the earliest. But I asked my mom the same question when I said, when you guys were, you know, again, before kids or yeah. before us, uh, I said, did dad take you, did you ever go to the club dates with mom or with dad? She said, no. Dad always said a plumber doesn't take his wife to work. <laughs> so that's how, we, it's interesting because they all thought that way. Yeah, that, I mean, like they, they knew. knew they weren't the stars, and they knew that they were the, the they were the, the, the players, and they really looked at it as a as a as an occupation. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, occupy they were for, they knew they were fortunate, and they loved what they did. Right, right. But still, it was this uh, this idea because, like, usually with creative people, as you know and I know, yeah. And I think this is indicated in the documentary at the time the business changed, where where some sort of notion of authenticity was needed yeah. in order to market the music. And, and I think you sort of suggest in the documentary that towards the end, the monkeys were the last bit of that shit. Yeah, that 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 when the the controversy around the monkeys being a band or not being a band right. sort of broke, that the the market became different because the the, the kids demanded that their right. musicians play their instruments. Yeah, and I think the musicians themselves. Sells like it's funny because I uh, interviewed um, uh, Mickey. No, no, oh. I love Mickey. And, but Mickey was his point was he didn't understand the controversy because he felt I'm an actor. Yeah. What yeah, controversy? Yeah. It's a TV show. And he had to take drum lessons just yeah. to be passable. He, yeah, yeah. You know, he was like so for him it's like and his point was if they had put the musicians' names on those records there would have been no problem. It would have been fine. Yeah. I think what happened was there was a backlash against the monkeys, not so much from the public, but internally, I think from the music community of bands 
that aren't getting a chance. I'm, you know, that was what I felt from him because now you got the monkeys being forced down record stores. Right, throats. You got to right. put this up on the you know, on the. You, you're right. taking shelf space away right. from someone. Right. So now they got this huge thing, the train driving, and they call the monkeys TV show. Right. Nobody else has that. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean. Yeah. Right. So they, they, some artists felt ripped off. Yeah. In the way of like sort of like why are they get in the shot. Exactly. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting too that y- 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 in being sort of someone who doesn't live in that business and noticing this in your documentary and also the Muscle Shoals documentary is that you had these producers, you had these guys who were A and R guys, you had these um these yes. studio execs that were like they when you talk about hits like I don't even get you know, my brain doesn't even work that way. It's like well that's a great album and that like I know that what a hit is, but really on the business side of it is like. Like, we need at least two hits on this fucking record. Right. Like, they knew which ones were going to be the hits, and it's almost like the rest of the album was like, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But if we get one hit, and when there's It'll only s- like four labels in the world, exactly. and they had all the radio stations, yeah. that was millions and millions of dollars. You're right. So those guys, you know, some of them had a sense of it. You know, you got Clive Davis, you got Jerry yeah. Wexler, you got the, you know, some of the guys that your, your old man worked with. Yeah. But these guys were hit makers from that end. They didn't, they weren't musicians. No. But their sensibility was like, this is it. And they knew what they knew how to market, uh huh. And they knew how to, uh, you know. And that's the thing is, you go and people, you know, you compare the business now to then. I mean, you can't compare. It's like apples and oranges. Um, those days, like you said, something was just. There were only a few radio stations, right? You know, and th- you look back when we we're growing up. Yeah, you go fifty years back in terms of, uh, let's say, sixty-five. You go fifty years back in terms of music. There's nothing. Yeah, recorded that we could say that's you know we're listening to as kids. You go now. Our kids are listening to the Beach Boys mm-hmm. from fifty '60s all the way up to now. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of material. Yep. And for a hit to make it now is almost impossible compared to those days because you had limited music, limited output in terms of outlets. Right. Right. And also, it was like it, it was huge money, dude. Oh, I mean, yeah. even like you know, with ask with the ASCAP, uh, you, you know. Yeah. Uh, coming back and the publishing and stuff that that like it always fascinates me because i got a buddy who's in the music business that you know the 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 amount of money that could be made you know for different people in that world was astounding yeah it seems like it was uh it was phil specter the beach boys you know the birds a bit jan and dean yeah jan and dean then then glenn campbell as a as a guitar player and as part of the crew and then his solo career and then uh and then you get into um mamas and papas that folk thing and Oh, the Herb Albert thing—that was oh, the yeah. thing. That Herb, yeah, that Herb was fucking huge. Huge. That you know that that whole world of that that instrumental thing, yeah. that that type of pop music, yeah. which is almost not around anymore. Yeah. But you know, he went on to become a huge. Uh, uh, he owned a label, didn't yeah, he? A and M. Yeah, start, him and Jerry Moss started A and M. And your dad was part of that whole thing. Yeah, they were. You know, it's the. You know, you know one single. What was it? Well, the first, yeah, that's. I always get these all mixed up. Your taste of honey, taste of honey. Yeah. Then there's Spanish Flea, and there was Lonely Bull. Those were huge, huge. Not in my life. Right, but much younger. Right, but now, so when you're sort of assessing this, like you know, at what stage in your career and in your life? 
did it become sort of this 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 thing this this you i mean it seems to me that with this documentary despite the fact that you're working on the productions and right. everything else that this was a a a project of the heart and 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 you felt a, labor of love a labor of love i love that yeah <laughs> labor of love which means it's it's such a wonderful line because it means no one else helped <laughs> that's what it means <laughs> but but also that your compulsion no, I mean, was was you you know you you know what were your feelings about your father at the time when it's you just dis- decided? It's a great question. It's a great question. Um, it's very interesting because you know people think, oh yeah, you must have been really close to your father. We were very close, but we fought like motherfuckers. Yeah, you know we, you know like any about father what? son anything, anything. It could have been music. It could have been he would push my button like no one, like a father would. You the oldest? No. I have an older brother. Uh huh. But Wait, was, did he get off the hook? That guy? Uh, yeah, kind of, because he was, you know, ten years <laughs> out, and that's another story. But we were so close. But he knew, um, as a father son, we were each other's greatest heroes mm-hmm. and also greatest critics. He couldn't have been judgmental of your career choice. No, no, not at all. Very yeah. supportive. Yeah. Very, very supportive. It was little. It was petty bullshit. So when he was sick, How, what, it, what happened? What, what, he had lung cancer. Yeah. And, but if you look in the film. Every picture, there's a cigarette. Yeah, sure. When you're a guitar player and you yeah. have a bad reputation yeah. of being a smoker, yeah, you know you're bad. Yeah, you know there was they knew where to- Tommy was here, right? Because yeah. the studio was filled with guitar butts. He would constantly three cigarette packs a day yeah. cigarette. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. Mm-hmm. He didn't like that because he didn't like being out of control. Mm-hmm. He was a freak. And I asked my mom about that too. I said, and she said, well, Dad was always paranoid about literally. Um, getting arrested and being he had claustrophobia so his fear, biggest fear in life was going to be in god help him in a jail, in a jail cell. cell yeah 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 so he would never drink and drive yeah it was freaking he didn't drink at all he drank when he got home or yeah, yeah. drink here and there but yeah. not you know yeah um but it was but when he when he got sick i yeah. thought all right that's it bullshit done you know no more you know no more uh fighting on your side on my side yeah well <laughs> even him i think we all came to you know and I had done a uh, a project, small project with uh, a buddy of mine about him, which is where that footage of him in the seminar. Yeah, that's where that's from in the early eighties mm-hmm. at uh, Musicians Institute, and Zappa comes from that. That, that Zappa bit's great, and that Zappa line for those well, I might as well spill it here is the Zappa line. I took him the pic, uh, the piece of my dad in the Gong Show. Yeah. My dad was on the gong show for this. In a dress. In a, in a, After his, tattoo, car- he thought his career was over. Right. So what that came about was a running gag in town that Tommy would do this uh, thing called Requiem for a Studio Guitar Player. Yeah. And he did it when he was, every year was winning the Naris Award for Guitar Player. Yeah. Was, and then all of a sudden Larry Carlton won. Yeah. So that when they gave Larry the award, yeah. he did a skit with Larry who said, you know, yeah. In the 50s, I was something. In the 60s, I was a king. 70s rolled out, round. I'll do just about anything. Uh-huh. So I went to Zappa with that piece. And I thought Zappa was going to be like, you know, funny. Zappa's yeah. not funny. <laughs> He's, He's not. He's intense. Serious dude. And I didn't realize that because I didn't obviously know Zappa. But when he said those lines, what he gave me, it was, oh, it was uh, whatever. It was not good. But 30 years later, it was like Frank was given that to me for 30 years later. What was the line again? Do you remember? Um, he said, um, basically, when my he says, you know what, Tommy's put up with a lot of shit in this business, so look past the costume and think about blah blah blah. Whatever yeah, it was, yeah. it was kind of like the end of a career, even though it wasn't really the end of my dad's career because he went on for another twenty years yeah. doing movies and stuff. 
but it fit perfectly. Yeah, yeah, and it was weird because it was just one. It was like like exactly. a minute. Yeah, it's like thirty if that. I didn't. But know. you it's, shot that because I yeah. couldn't tell where that was from. I was like, did he just you pick that up? It was just no. you saw him out and you went up to the house or what? Yeah, I went to Frank's house where it was on Benedict or whatever it was, and still there. Yeah, it's still there, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And in I just, that basement studio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember going in there, and Frank was like, uh, "Is your dad coming?" Because um, he was very shy, Frank. He yeah. was very quiet. I said, uh, "Sure." And uh, let me call him, make sure he's on his way, because he wasn't coming. So yeah. I said, "Dad, you got to get out of here now." Uh huh. You know, it's before cell phones. Uh huh. And so we waited, and Frank's like working in the studio with like two notes on back and forth, with reel to reel. And I'm going, yeah. "What the hell's he doing?" Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. He was intense. Yeah. Did so? Tommy showed up. Yeah. And, and they were good friends. They, they were. They were actually very. They, I have a great bootleg tape. When I say bootleg, it was something that was recorded in a little, uh, uh Silmar. California. My dad would do this um, uh, jam session like mm-hmm. once every Wednesday would be guitar. Out in night. the desert? No, no. Selmar? Selmar, yeah, the valley. Yeah. It was his friend had an Italian restaurant. Yeah. So he would go there. He'd bring guys in. Yeah. You know, sometimes it was Joe Pass, sometimes it was you know, Steve Lukather or yeah. whoever was playing or that guy. Yeah. So one night it was Joe Pass and Frank Zappa and himself. They yeah. just came together and and Frank playing jazz with yeah. with uh, he was a monster guitar yeah, player. Yeah. Dude. Zappa was yeah, but he but he wasn't a jazz good player right, right. like compared to Joe Pass. Yeah, sure, sure. And so the, Joe's like going, what the fuck? Is he playing? Yeah, yeah. It? But it was good. It was the, those that the relationship again is they respected each other as musicians exactly because you know Frank was a bit of a control freak and you know right. And my father respected Frank. You know he did the Lumpy Gravy album. He did. Yeah. And that was the first time he met Frank. Well, the first time he knew he met Frank. Frank, Frank brought had, him in as a session player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Frank brought everybody in. And there's a great outtake of uh, Emil Richards, a great vibe, is pl- talking about it. Everybody thought, what is this guy doing? Yeah. And then my father looked at the music and was, holy shit. Yeah. Because it was going to be hard. It yeah. wasn't bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So he had it, you know, it's like, because my dad comes dressed up as a Boy Scout, right. thinking he's going to, you know, be a clown. Clown. Yeah. And it's like, oh, great. Yeah, you know, he's like, wrong guy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so that's what he had to do. He was a constant joker, and that one backfired. Yeah, him. yeah. He thought like yeah. I'm gonna walk through this. Yeah, and and Frank had the notes like no, layered exactly. Out. Yeah, it, and him and Amal Richards, the vibus, yeah. they had a contest like who's gonna get through this faster? Let's speed it up, and they kept going. Well, it's interesting when you when you listen to some of that Zappa stuff, how like elaborate and beyond structure it necessarily was, but you know, it was orchestrated to yeah. the note. Absolutely, and that's where the fight was started. Was like from a French horn player or something. It was like this is a bunch of shit. And then Amos said, "You know, just try playing it. Let's yeah. go." Yeah, you know. And and did what? What was the feeling? Did, did they feel that the the piece was like astounding? Or did, like, no, I, I don't think one way or another. Oh, really? You know, what? again, a tough gig. Yeah, it's one of those like you know, it's not my dad's cup of tea. He right. doesn't give a shit. But they remain friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of respect. Yeah, and I, think they, so. and I think and I think they were both Italian. Yeah, and they were both, not, yeah, and they were both uh, non-bullshitters. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Just, they didn't bullshit. But you, but your feeling was that I when wanted, your father got sick, I wanted to make sure. I I think maybe deep down, maybe I didn't want him to go. Sure, of course. You know, no. maybe that's why I just kept going. Maybe that's why I haven't finished this doc. Doc, you don't <laughs> consider it finished yet. It's well, out. no. It's here's no. Here's what we should make sure everybody knows. It's not out. <laughs> It's not out, by the way. I got it. It looked like it was no, in the no, box. No, no, no. What's happened was, all right, so 1996, I start this. I like to say 17 years ago, 17 years younger and uh, 35 pounds lighter. Uh-huh. Basically, when I started in 96, dad got sick, right? He passes away in 97. 
And right after he passed, I put a, together a nice 14-minute teaser reel. I got Nancy Sinatra. I got Cher in it at this point. I got everybody going. But no one would touch this damn thing because the music. And they all said- The licensing. The licensing. They said, you got- Oh, my God. I didn't even think about no, that. No, yeah. At that point, I you know now the film's got 120 songs in it. And, 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 and what, 90 of them are hits? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. 98%. Exactly. Yeah. So I said to I so I kept going to everybody say you're never going to get the labels and the publishers to agree on this it's impossible yeah well I had to keep shooting and go on and carry on you have to have the music right you yeah. can't tell the story without it right so I you know you could talk about it well it was going to be a shit documentary right so I kept going and no one would ever jump in finally in 2006 I always talk about crossing that line where you went too far and. Um, my wife thought we just made the most expensive home movie ever. Yeah. You know, it was like, in, you know. We're, How much are you into it for? Oh, at that point, a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, and now, we're, God, I don't even, I cringe. Because yeah. I look at, you know, it's my house. Yeah. And um, so we said, all right, let's make the one jump. Let's yeah. go for it. We got to get an editor, a producer, slash. And so I got Claire Scanlon, who was my editor. And um, we cut this thing. Yeah. In 2008, we got into the film festivals. Yeah. Did it remarkably, remarkably well. Yeah. Excuse if easy for say, I could say, but won a lot of awards, and no one, no one would touch it. But I got couldn't distribute it. But I you could show it. it. I could show it, but I paid for the you know festival use. Yeah. So then no one would touch it, and I went. Back, and then one of the labels, a publisher, says, "Danny, you got to renegotiate. Let's do it again. Let's yeah. get it lower. Try to get it because no one's going to touch it." So I went back. Everybody came on. There was one maybe putz that was giving me a problem, but the publisher. Yeah, 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 and but everybody else was cool. They were Every, like, yeah, everybody's yeah. really into it. And then I had to go back renegotiate. It took two years to get everybody signed off on this. And while to was, just give it to you? No, no, no. I'm paying. Oh really? Oh yeah, I'm still paying. I'm not la asking for free. Yeah, I love for free, but no one, no, no. I'm still paying. I just needed to come back at a, a, a more because I have a hundred, and everybody's the most favorite nation. So if one guy's going to be a jerk, every you know, then I got to pay everybody. But the, but see, this this is what baffles me about that. Is that you know this is a historical document right. of 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 their music yeah. and their business yeah. and if anything yeah. would, would sell some records you know because yeah, like they don't give a shit <laughs> they don't. I know I agree in, with in you. my mind it's like oh, I'm gonna go revisit Glenn Campbell I never yeah. bought Glenn Campbell in my life in, and now like I gotta listen to Glenn Campbell I know I I've done that but they don't a lot of people it. do that no because the guy I'm dealing with is the guy that barely has a job still in this business. Oh, right. you know what I mean? He's a department that's sort of like, he, hey, give him that job in the, the publishing. Yeah, or, he, or, or uh, he might be the licensing guy, but licensing that person, guy. he or she, you know, I call back four months later, they're gone because, yeah, you know, yeah, they've yeah, cut yeah. loose. So right. it's been that kind of a... Right. Uh, so once I get everybody signed, and I've been paying as we go along. So I have people who are making donations through, a, you know, IDA, and I would do these fundraising screenings, and, and sooner or later, I paid it off. Yeah, and the last one was Kickstarter, which was a couple months ago. There was one huge bill. Yeah, I needed, which was the musicians' union. Yeah, and I needed to pay these contracts, and I wanted to pay those contracts what, before for what? Because they call it reuse. Yeah, if you're going to use these songs in yeah. a movie, you got to pay the musicians again, which is fine. So, so you got to pay the licensing fee for the Mas publishing, masters of publishing, and the musicians' union. Okay, this is one of the biggest musicians union contracts ever any film because there's over so <laughs> they didn't want 120 hit songs as much as they wanted you know they gave me a great deal but yeah. as much as they wanted you know the money no one wanted to do the work so that was a long negotiation whatever 
but we got Kickstarter finally came in. I had to go. I needed like three hundred fifty thousand yeah. to really do everything. Yeah, and I reached for two fifty and got three hundred. So yeah. we paid off the musicians' union. Okay, I have a few more songs now. Now I'm hoping to God. As we, you know, you added a few songs. No, no, we've we've paid. We only have a few more songs. I did actually add a couple more. <laughs> Since you've seen it, yeah. Don't tell anybody. Okay, I'm paying for it. Just don't yeah, tell my yeah, wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I had to do is basically, I still pay. Now I've only got maybe four songs left to pay, and I'm done. I free 100 percent own this thing outright. Holy shit! So I I played by the rules. I did yeah. not. You know, I've not released this film. And your father would have appreciated that. Absolutely. He was a union guy. He yeah. got it. You know what pissed me off? Yeah. And I'm going to say it now is uh, my dad did a lot of jazz albums. Yeah. I mean, not a lot. I mean, he did whatever, his own personal jazz albums. And he would have said they sold 25 albums, yeah. maybe, all together. Yeah. Um, so one of the labels, and I won't mention names. Okay. You can figure it out sooner or later. I had a bill of $6,000. A bill of $7,500. Yeah. And I for your dad's music? No, 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 okay. no. For a bunch of music yeah, from yeah. this one label, and I went. Well, I have six thousand in the bank. I'm going to pay them six thousand. I said, wait, three of those songs you guys have in your catalog from my dad's own personal jazz albums. Uh-huh. Now, again, you got to realize you don't know my dad's out al- music. Yeah, my mom couldn't probably identify those songs. Yeah, you know, n- unless you're a Tommy Tedesco jazz freak. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you hear it in the background. And I said, "Do you mind if I get that gratis?" Yeah, that record guy tore my tore me up upside down as if I just insulted his mother. Yeah, and that's when I lost respect for that guy. Yeah, because that was the one I was like, "Dude, you could have given me that." Yeah, you know, fine. Here, here's your fifteen hundred dollars for my dad's music. Yeah, you know, yes, you know, he wrote the songs. Yes, it's an album that you didn't even know you had. Right. You know, but that's the only time I lost respect for you know. Most, I mean, Herb Alpert's been phenomenal. Um, they've all been phenomenal. I mean, the labels have been, you know, listen, it's hard because I'm not asking, giving them a lot of money. So I'm on the back burner. Most There's a of licensing stuff. fee. Yes. So, all right. So why, why don't we go through, be, you know, just be, because, you, you know, yeah. I, I don't know if you, you have it at the top of your head or if I could find it necessarily, but, you, you know, starting with as far back as you remember, you know, either songs or albums that you had a license for this thing. Oh, God. All right. Well, Beach Boys, uh, Good Vibrations. Um, and they were on the Pet Sound, the whole Pet yeah, Sound album. Yeah, the whole album. Pet Sound is basically them because that's when Brian was doing his own thing. There's and, some fascinating stuff in the doc about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, Brian. Well, the thing is, Brian. Had, you know, and I actually interviewed uh, Dean Torrance of Jan and Dean last month, and he told me how that all came about. Yeah. He said what happened was Jan and Dean were doing their thing. Yeah. Brian Wilson, or the Beach Boys, were their opening act, like on this one of those, you know, the rock and roll tours. Yeah. So they were doing like they were like the house band in a sense, and they would play with all these acts coming through. The Beach Boys. The Beach Boys. Yeah. So Jan and Dean did their thing, which was a yeah. doo-wop thing. Yeah. And then. They came short on time or whatever, and then they had to go back out, and Janet Dean started singing Beach Boy songs with the guys. Yeah. So they had a relationship. Right. All of a sudden, um, Brian gives them, uh, I can't remember the song, Surf and Surf, not Surf and Surf, whatever it was. And Janet Dean has this huge hit with it, one of Brian's songs. Brian sees, he walks into the studio and sees all these studio musicians, and, and Jan says, Brian, you could do this. You just hire these guys. They just come and they show up and they do your music and you walk away. You don't have to have the brothers and all that do it all. And so Brian was like, yeah. Yeah. And so it was easier for Brian to deal with musicians. Yeah. 
than probably family. And also to execute his vision. Exactly. Yeah. Because like, you know, when they were talking about Brian, all of them, you know, Carol and your father, it seemed that they were like, this kid had something. Yeah, and they didn't know what, but it, it was like he's got something that's different. And but his arrangements defied their 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 sort of understanding a yeah. little bit. And I don't think they knew that until after they heard it. Uh huh. And that was the weird thing. It's not like because oh, not, like, who was talking about that? Good vibration was it Glenn, Glenn Campbell? Campbell when he first heard it? He said, "Wow, what?" Because the? it would it was all pieced together. Yeah, yeah, Glenn yeah. Would, or uh, Brian was piecing it together, and he heard good vibrations on the car radio, and he's like, "Oh my god." Yeah. I had you know, no idea. And Liam Russell, in the interview I did with him recently, he said, Brian would, he's in Liam Russell saying he's the great, saying Brian Wilson is one of the greatest guys, greatest composers, composers ever. And that's yeah. coming from Leon. And Leon said he would go around the room and tell each guy what he wanted to play. Yeah. And he said, by the time he got back to the beginning, the first guy forgot it, but he'd tell him again. Yeah. And you so know, he, he had his shit together. Right, right, right. And it was really cool, you know, Leon's praising, you know, Brian. All right, so all that Beach Boy stuff. Now, the Phil right. Spector stuff is another whole catalog of stuff that your dad and those yeah, guys Phil were involved Spector, in. Yeah, Phil And that was, then I had to deal with that over the years because then Phil, you know. Before he got in trouble. Well, this is don't. This is way before he got in trouble. I, yeah, you know, to get Phil stuff was going to be impo hard in itself. But then all of a sudden, Phil kills the girl. Yeah, now it's like great. No, there's nothing. There's no. And I so was he trying, had. So he had possession of his whole catalog. Yeah. Okay. So and I was always trying to get. Holy shit! So he's still making a fortune. Well, he sold a lot of it off to, to pay get, for the bills. Yeah. But uh, he, um, I was trying to get a hold of you know. I was trying to get Phil for years to you talk know. to you. Yeah. I mean, before all this shit. Yeah. You know, and Phil was very, you know, instrumental. Yeah. You know, and these guys, you know. Well, that, you know, the, you know, the, what was interesting about that is it seemed that Phil, that all these guys who come from a, you know, a, a big band background or yeah. a jazz bow background, you know, were now involved in, you know, a, an orchestral sort of setting right that was completely unique to them that you know they they all had experience with sitting on a bandstand with 20 guys or 15 guys or however many right but now there's 30 guys in a room and they're doing popular rock music right. so that that you know I, I just it's I guess it's hard to really because you think know they just thought of it as any other music I don't another think they were gig, one, yeah. right but I mean but at some point it'd be interesting to know because I know that even when they talked about it your father and whoever was talking about it you're like this guy was running us you know, it was really about the time and the exhaustion right and and whether they were getting it right or you know and one guy yeah. i guess uh which guitar howard player, roberts howard roberts was so, like fuck this yeah and that was because uh the, which is interesting because phil was a frustrated guitar player he wanted to be a jazz guitar player oh really that's why he surrounds himself with howard roberts my father barney kessel uh bill Pittman. they're all jazz guitar players in this mm -hmm. group uh -huh. in a sense yeah and so when and um, Howard. Howard Roberts actually was teaching Phil. Yeah. So now all of a sudden Phil's telling Howard, the greatest jazz guitar player around, to how to play. Howard said, "Fuck you. Yeah, I'm yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I walked. Yeah. And then the other guys were like, "That's kind of uh, well, well, you don't want to lose our gig. We <laughs> just keep going. You know. But but it's interesting. You don't get any sense from any of the people that because I didn't see it in the documentary either that you know they were such sort of like. Um, you know, kind of working class people who had a job that they loved, but you don't get a, you know, there was a couple of moments, I think, with Carol and Brian Wilson where you get this sense of like, well, we were really part of something amazing. I think only after years later, uh -huh. only after you, you know, like I said, I asked all of them, I said, was there any intimidation or were you, you know, by these artists? And they said, no, the only, not intimidation, but the time you're ever going to be sh right on is when you go get that call for Sinatra. Yeah. Because you realize, 
everybody these guys are working for, Brian, yeah, and all these other guys, they're yeah. kids. Yeah, they're nobody. They're yeah. not hit makers yet. Yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. a hit maker. Well, I mean, before Pet Sounds, they'd had a couple. Well, of yeah, them, but but, they, but, but, but they, it's not really. You know, it was I mean, just go, it was like bubblegum bubble music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you get a call for Sinatra, that's right. when you call him back to Niagara Falls and say, "Mom, I'm playing with Frank." <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Gambino family back there is excited yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, you know, that kind of like that was the only time you were. They were like, okay, yeah. But you know, like my father said, he said, "Listen, I might have." You know, someone said. Don't you think you should have been paid more for, let's say, adding your arrangements or this and that or those notes and da yeah. da da? He said, no. He said, you know, I go to work. He says, don't forget, I made hundreds of hits, but I made thousands of bombs. Yeah. He says, I never gave anybody their money back on yeah, a bomb. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's just what it is. But so, but but really, that question is, don't you think you should have been cut into the publishing money? No, because I think they tried at some point, but I think. It's like one of those things where what are you gonna do? Hold back on creativity? Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you're not gonna give that line because you think it's a great line in your act. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because you're giving it to the other guy. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's all your, your artists are. You know, they're working together. Hopefully, what, what was this the, the the riff? Was that was that the Howard thing? Was uh was that Spanish riff? Was that the no? That's my riff? dad's. Right. Well, what right. was that song? What song was that from? Oh, he used to do. Uh, he the gag was my dad. Oh no, not the gag. But there oh. was like there was a guitar part. Who was talking about? Oh, it? oh, that was um, uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Yeah, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Right, right, that, right. That Tommy, sure gonna love you. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, Tommy had done this riff and they couldn't play it live on stage, right? Right. right. <laughs> he because he would, you know. Again, you listen to you. That's the difference. You listen to those guys of certain caliber, and, you, and you've seen it. You you play guitar, but you know when you see a guitar player that's a monster. Yeah. You go. You put it down. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? You go. Ooh, you know, you cringe. You're thinking about it. And that's what these guys were. Those were the guy, the monsters that would make the other guys cringe. Yeah. So that's why when they might have been pissed off in the studio when they're watching someone else record their parts, but yeah. then they realize why they're recording their parts. Right. You understand. Right. And right. then you found they found a newfound respect for the guys behind the glass. You know, or well, that. they made the hit. Now you just got to go right. service it. Yeah. You know, and, and if you don't service it in the same way, who gives a shit? Yeah. It's a live show, and they're this. That's it. And yeah. that's what people didn't understand is like, well, how could they play? You know, how could the Beach Boys and all these groups? playing concert they had weeks to practice sure and they you know and they just got to sound sucked yeah can you imagine recording some of those concerts yeah they'd be here forever and torturing us what, what's interesting to me in, in, in terms of your experience with this you, you know and obviously you know you've got all this music you got the phil Spector stuff you, what was the frank sinatra thing what did your father's experience with frank sinatra? oh well you know he did actually work with frank a few times strangers in the night was you know the big one that he did with frank you know that he remembers uh-huh. that he was there or that yeah he, you know, was the special one. Yeah. Even though, but you know, it's funny because Bill Pittman again back to King Salt thought yeah. it's a piece of shit song, yeah. and so did Frank. Nancy didn't said her dad hated that song. Yeah, Strangers in the Night, which yeah. is really interesting. My dad, uh, I remember playing a casual. A casual for those that don't know is basically it's like a wedding or whatever. Right. And he did uh, Frank's wedding, and um, I can't remember. It would have been Mia Farrow, maybe. Maybe it was basically him, his trio. Yeah, three guys yeah. at a dinner party of ten. Oh, really? Could you imagine what that's yeah. like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, working with Frank, you rehearsed all day, not all day, whatever. You yeah. rehearsed for a few hours. Frank come in, and boom, knock out one, two takes. Yeah. You know, did your father love him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think maybe being an Italian kid, also, he said there was no better singer. Yeah. For him. Yeah. You know, that was, and you talk to those singers of, even like, you know, I've talked to a few people said that guy's intonation was just, forget it. Yeah, yeah. It was a natural. Uh huh. Who else did your father, like, respect? Um, respected, uh, 
Oh God, that's a tough one. Yeah. It's funny because he played with Elvis. Yeah. You know, um, he always loved, uh, he liked Sam Cooke. Yeah. He liked oh, Sam yeah. Cooke. Yeah. He played with Marvin Gaye, but Sam Cooke, he thought was, he liked him as a better singer. I just got a Sam Cooke album. I wonder if I just saw that. Was that your dad's? No, no, but Hal's on that though. And Renee Hall, uh, yeah, Renee Hall's, that's the one with, uh, oh God, what's it called? I saw that in your yeah, collection. Yeah, I just got it. I just got it sealed. I didn't know it was sealed. I, yeah. I needed a bunch, of, I wanted to get a bunch of records. A guy gave me a sealed records and I got a collector's item in there and I don't know if I can fucking open it to listen to it. Oh, who cares? Just open it. Yeah. <laughs> just listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can do. Yeah, I know. I Make know. $10 more? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely on. right. So like, uh, all right, so that's right. I forgot about the Sam Cooke part. It's just astounding to me. And how Blaine, you got such a gift with that guy living. Oh, I, I mean, tell you, man, what a character. He is uh, outright gone. I mean, he's just, he, for a The con- drummer. He, yeah. But, he's a, but he is the drummer. The drummer. I mean, you had him and Earl Palmer. The difference is Earl is a little older. So Earl comes out of New Orleans with, you know, um, you know Little Richard that and groove, all that yeah. groove. And, he, and then Hal starts up and- when Hal, uh, Earl's too busy, he starts giving it to Hal. Then Hal's going, and Earl's going, and they're doing double drums on Jan and Dean, and they're going back, you know, doing it all together. And there's no jealousy. That's the greatest thing because there's no jealousy when there's so much work. Yeah, you know, right. And my dad would, but do they it. must love it when they're in it, the groove and oh, just hitting yeah. it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I gotta imagine that the, the no matter how much they frame it as like we got jobs, when they're on a groove and they oh, nail yeah. it, they must be like, holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and Hal was on six records of the year. What do you know? Which ones? It would have been. Uh, I know uh, the Captain and Tennille was the, the last, last one. one. That's seven, um, but it would have been uh, Taste of Honey, uh, uh, Up, Up and Away, uh, Aquarius, um, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, and I'm trying. And Mrs. Robinson. Wow, did I nail it? Yeah, I think maybe. So. But like Up, Up and Away, there's an example of where my father didn't know he was on it. Yeah. And the only reason he knew was Jimmy Webb gave all the guys little charms, like Grammy charms. Yeah. And he said to Hal, what was this for? <laughs> he says, that's that thing we did with Bones and da da da. And it was that fit dimension thing we did last year. Because yeah. now you realize you're making <laughs> What's a. What's this for? They do it that much. I don't know what this is for. I don't know I'm on that. Can you imagine you don't know what you're on? Because you're working so much. Working so much, but you're also you're only there for three hours. They're giving you music you've never heard before. Yeah, no and, one's and ever maybe heard the it. vocal track isn't even on. Vocal it. track's not on that. Oh, see, yeah. So you're not. So all you're playing is some rhythm tracks. Yeah. You're laying down the tracks. Yeah. Walking away. Yeah. Boom. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. Months later, it comes out. You're not listening. Right. You're not oh, listening. See, I didn't even. I didn't even factor that in. So you're not sitting there going like, "We're doing a song for the fifth dimension." No. No. You got a three-hour session. They but they you, might tell you, or the, the right. singer might it be there. Who doesn't, doesn't matter? You put the cans on. You, there's a there's a drum. There's a bass, yeah. and you got your music in yeah. front of you. You knock it out, and you're yeah. out. Yeah. So they didn't know a lot of times. It's funny because sometimes a lot of these guys, you know, and uh, a lot of these people, as I like to say, uh, they think they did a lot more shit than they did. Now, as my father said, here's the thing. He says the people were talking about you. They they weren't on the fringes. Yeah. They worked. My dad went to work at eight o'clock in the morning. And sometimes never came home. Yeah, because if he had a gig at the same studio the next morning, you know what? I'll stay here. I'll sleep in the studio. Yeah. Or they play cards all night. Oh yeah, they were gamblers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the thing. That was the thing. Bad. But uh, but really bad. Yeah. Like what? Lose that house? Bad. Uh, it was bad enough to where it was like he'd bet on anything. That was his it, thing. He did anything. It wasn't. It could have been. You know. Yeah. And you know he just. That was his thing. That caused friction at home? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, and, and it's funny though when he got when he kind of got sick, he had a stroke. What happened was, and you'll appreciate this for all of us is why I think the film has done so well with audiences. There's different reasons. You all know the music, and that's yeah. easy. That's fifty percent of the story, and yeah. that's piece of cake. Yeah, and this is all by accident. Yeah, there's two things going on in the story. One, it's about a group of musicians, you know, where you were in the thick of it and you're just kicking ass and nothing's stopping you. And my question to all these guys, what happens when you're not the A team anymore? When you are, you know, it's like, you know, at that juncture in the late sixties. The late sixties yeah. or whatever, whenever it is for anybody. From my dad it was the late eighties. Yeah. Because he went from sixties records and seventies into T V and film. Yeah, he had a hell of a Huge career. Huge career in film and stuff, like you saw in the um, yeah. and um and so what happened is I asked Bones how and these are my two favorite lines, is Bones, the great producer engineer, said, You're like you're like a athlete. Yeah. You got your ten years in the yeah. minors, whatever. You yeah. got you, and you're at the top, and then you got the ramp down. He says it's not staying at the top; it's taking yeah. the ramp down as long as possible. Yeah, and that's for all of us. And you don't have to be a comedian, a musician, an actor. You could be a uh, a lawyer. You could be a postman. Yeah. We all want to be part of something in right. our society. Right. We just want to be. We want you relevant. That's the word. Thank yeah. you. And that was the thing. And the other question I had about it for everybody was. How did all going to work twenty four seven affect your personal lives? Now, how he was married six times, yeah, you know, as he's like, as he, he, one got him though, yeah, huh? yeah, one not one, one got him. Um, Poor guy. As my father said, do you remember that line in my father's house as well? It affected me. I had six wives, and my father's yeah, but it wasn't because of your drumming; it was your personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I so I asked everybody, and Plaz the Johnson, the yeah. wonderful sax man and yeah. legend who did the pink panther and stuff he said and he paused and he said you know what i'm a better grandfather than a father yeah and again if you're a parent you understand instantly because you're trying like hell to make this work and it's never going to make it right and also that generation was different exactly i mean the the the, the work ethic was like i just got to provide exactly the, the other stuff yeah, you yeah. maybe that'll happen maybe it won't yeah <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's true. And, you, you know, thank God for my mother. God bless her. I mean, yeah. she kept it together at home. Still around? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. She's she's uh, 83. You got kids? Yeah, two. How old? Uh, Isabella's 15 and Raphael's nine. So they didn't know him? No. No. Mm -hmm. But they all they know is Wrecking Crew. <laughs> That's all they know is daddy does Wrecking Crew and they're <laughs> sick of it. <laughs> so, but, okay. So let's say, you know, for you... You know, was you know when your father's dying? You, yeah. When someone has a prolonged cancer, you at least you have time to process. Yeah. The grief at the time. I mean, what 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 did this serve uh, your relationship? You know, as he was dying, and then afterwards. I mean, because you I, literally yeah, you have a growing relationship with your father. You know, fifteen years after he's sure. dead. Yeah. You know what? I, that's a very. That's really. I've never been asked that, but it's really interesting. I think what I'm the thing i'm proudest of and it's not about the movie but the people i've met uh -huh. you know around the country uh guitar players uh -huh. and people that are strangers to me but they met him uh -huh. they met him let's say at a seminar in rochester or uh -huh. they met him in this or you know and they would couldn't say anything the stories that come back of how nice he was or what he did for them uh chuck rainey was a wonderful uh one of the greatest bass players of all time uh -huh. And he told me a story about, and he was in the you know rock and roll stuff and this you know uh, Steely Dan and all that stuff, 
And he said, I came to town, he says, in the 70s. I'm the big rock and roll studio guy, and I'm on a TV date. Yeah. He says, you know, that's totally different. Yeah. You know, you're a studio musician. Yeah, everybody's a studio musician, quote unquote. Yeah. But you're not, until you get to this certain position, you're going, oh shit, I got to do this. Yeah. Things change. Records yeah. are different than TV. TV's yeah. different than film. Yeah. He says, I'm playing this part and it's an odd time for me on the yeah. bass. And yeah. all of a sudden I have to make a change in the time, bass time. He says, I blow it yeah. during rehearsal. Yeah. Mm. And he says, so now we're going again. And he says, all of a sudden, now we're rolling. It's just TV. You know, they got the projector rolling, everything going, big band. And he says, I blow it. And I'm, and all of a sudden, your father comes out of nowhere with his guitar and just makes a huge noise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, screws yeah. up. I said, Tommy, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. All right, let's do it again. Yeah. And uh, so Chuck says, we go again. He says, and they come to that piece again, the measure, and I'm blowing it again. Yeah. Your father again, bam, even louder. makes an even bigger noise. Tommy, what's up? You know, I'm fine. This is it. Let's do it. Roll back the film. And he turned, he said, your father turned to me and says, you're on your own now. <laughs> you know, he covered him. And now he didn't even know they had never met. Yeah. But he knew he was the new guy. Yeah. And he would protect the new guy. Yeah. You know, and he, and that to me was, when they talk about certain Did the guy people, nail it? No, you know, that's funny you ask, because I asked the same thing. Yeah. I said, Chuck, what did you do? He says, I didn't play. <laughs> he says, I let out. He says, and, and my father afterwards at the break, he says, that's what you're supposed to do the first time. He says, you, you, he says, look around the studio. He, he yelled at him. He says, they're all in the baseline. Everybody's playing. No one's going to hear you. Yeah. He says, so he, he was, that was a lesson. <laughs> he could, you know, and, yeah. and, it, and that was the thing. He was, he protected so many people and, you know, drummers would tell the same thing. The Placido Domingo album, Latin thing. And the producer was out of hand and, and they, he was getting out of hand. My father said at the break, took him outside, said, listen, motherfucker, if you don't cool out, we're all leaving. Yeah. You know, he said, that's it. Don't talk to these people. He had such disrespect for people that talked to musicians badly. Uh -huh. And he could do it because he was the older guy. Yeah. Yeah. He and, was, he, and, yeah. and it's like, don't talk bad to musicians. And, you know, sometimes they, you know, and he would, the one thing he taught me, don't blow it with the leader. Yeah. If you want to tell off the leader or the producer, whatever you want, that's fine. You could yeah. be 120% right, but don't expect to come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, it was, and that's kept me going on this project, 17 years, uh -huh. because those people I wanted to tell off 15 years ago when they yeah. wanted to give me something, well, they're back, they're still around, and they need to help me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's helped. So you, you didn't know. fucking burn any bridges? Not yet. Yeah. I, I only and got a couple more months. <laughs> what What about your relationships with the guys that knew your father, which I imagine right. became very deep, you know, through yeah. this process with like Hal or Hal Glenn. and Don Randy, you know, and Glenn was phenomenal. He's an interesting guy, Glenn Campbell. Yeah, huh? and, and very interesting. And that was the greatest thing is I, I, the other great thing about doing this doc, when I started it, yeah. it was 17 years ago. And you're like, it's Tommy's kid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm asking questions that yeah. he's never been asked. Who, Tommy? No, uh, Glenn. Uh, right. You know, I'm talking about the days of session players. This is, you know, 15, 10 years ago, whenever it was, before Alzheimer's. He had something going. We knew there was something when my interview. Oh, he's interview. got Alzheimer's? Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, man. he's gone. Oh. It's sad. It's very sad. He's stopped touring. He's just... But when I was asking him questions, it was questions that he'd never been asked. Uh-huh. And that, to him, was the greatest time period of his life. Yeah. Because he wasn't the leader. Before he became Be a Before solo he became act. solo act. Yeah. You know, the first time he came back from Europe doing a tour or something, he came back and um, go through the airport and someone said, hey, Glenn, how's it going? 
and going, who else everybody know me? Because yeah. it was the season replacement for the Smothers Brothers. Right. So that was that one time, and the Smothers Brothers got canceled, so they just kept him going. Yeah. And uh, with Hal Blaine. They, they, they used Hal, to... man, well, it was back to Hal. The guy, if he wasn't a musician, he would have been a comedian. Yeah. You know, he was friends with Lenny Bruce, and, yeah. you know. And he... We started in the burlesque, and he covered Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. And, I mean, you, you know, you go out to, no matter what you do, you could go anywhere. Something's going to light up a light bulb for a second. You know, yeah. you'd be in a deli, and all of a sudden a deli joke comes out, or yeah, this yeah. comes out. It's nonstop. I don't know how he knows so much, so many jokes. Yeah. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. And he's still all there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's there. So now, so what are we going to do, Danny? What are we, all right, so, what? so now I basically, what I'm doing is I got to get this thing out. Distributors wouldn't touch me because it was like, you know, no one wanted to touch it because of the music. Now it's all paid for. I'm paid for it. You know, so I'm just hoping to get this thing out there. I'm yeah. doing fundraisers. I'm doing literally, I'm doing private screenings. I do, I've shown this film all around the world. Well, where can people who are listening to this go and help out? Uh, basically, go to the website, WreckingCrewFilm.com. And, and, you know, if you're a distributor out there, why haven't you called? You, you know, I've paid it. Now, let's go. Um, I'm having, it's funny. I'm, the greatest thing for me was showing this film yeah. to live audiences. And it, we've had it as uh, fundraisers for different groups and, you know, foster care and different things. And um. I'm proud of the film. I'm really proud of the new cut too that no one's seen. So, and do you do you feel like on some level that you know it sounds like your relationship with your father wasn't horrible? And you no, know, not at all. But do you feel that you have that that was something compelling you around? Like not unlike you say your father looked out for the for the new guy and for the musician and for you, you know for the respect of of his profession. Yeah. Do you feel like you know as a son that you know you're sort of you know, not only carrying showing, it on. Yeah, yeah. Not wow, only, I got goosebumps. You're right. You know what? I never thought of it that way, but I, you know, I just when I think about it, yeah, because I get really. It's so weird that you said that because I'm just thinking about this. Like, yes, you're right. I do because I have such respect for these musicians. Yeah, I've the hardest thing for me is watching. Um. Musicians are so talented, yeah. or comics are so talented, or actors are so talented. It's a matter of luck sometimes. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. And it's so funny because I've said this, and I, you know, traveling this thing with this film. I only yeah. got a you know briefcase and a film with me, yeah. a backpack. You know, and I'm doing one nighters here and there, and go, how the hell do you guys do this shit? Yeah. You know, how do the musicians do it with the gear and the yeah. comics and you know the differences? You know. Hopefully, I have you know. It's a film. It's not as right. it's passive. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it's not interactive yeah, like yeah. you have to do it. Yeah. Like I couldn't imagine that. Yeah. But it is having the respect. I want them to have the respect in in people that know. Yeah, you know, and yeah. you know, you know, and my father was you know if you ever saw him play live for any of those people out there that saw him play live, you know, you go, <laughs> you know, he's ripping through, and my mom would say, "Why are you doing that?" Or you know, yeah. he'd be like. He says it's for the one guitar player in the room, you know. <laughs> the greatest, you know, I got to tell you some funny stories. Uh, you know, years ago when I was uh, producing for, I did those Pulp Comics things on yeah. Comedy oh, Central. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. What was the angle on Pulp Comics? Pulp Comics was doing the stand-up and we would cut to a uh, film about oh, yeah, yeah. what we were right, right, right. So I did Margaret Cho, I yeah. did Bobcat, I did Dana Gould. Uh, you were shooting it? No, I was producing yeah. it. Yeah. And I was producing the film parts. 
So my first time was with Bobcat. And Bobcat writes, who's a, actually one of the smartest guys I've ever he met. He directed four of my, he, or eight oh, of my episodes. He's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was so cool. I mean, so it's, I go to you know meet with Bob. Can we do all this shit? And I'm finding a location. Of course, Bobcat writes in a porno store on Van Nuys Boulevard. So I'm going to the porno store and making agreements, you know, you know, you know, to shoot there with his crew and his. And I give him the guy my card. He goes, "Any relation to Tommy?" <laughs> and I'm going, "God, I hope he's a guitar player." <laughs> Don't tell me my dad shops here. <laughs> yeah, that, those are the kind of and things. Was that, he a guitar? Player? Yeah, thank God. <laughs> but it was one of those things, you know, and that happens a lot. And I'm really, you know, again, those those articles were really popular, and he he told it like it was. Yeah. Well, I was I'm, well. Thank you for bringing me the Tommy Tedesco for guitar players yeah. only book. I need this. I'm, I what is it? Shortcuts and techniques, sight reading, and studio playing. And he, and you know what? The drummers tell me they used to read that book. It had nothing to do. There's stories in between that were pretty funny. Does it teach you how to read music? Yeah, I tried the other day. It still hasn't helped me. But I got to practice. Everybody assumes I can play guitar, but I haven't gotten the third chord down. So oh, like so in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to do this. That's what I do all the time. I'm going <laughs> to learn how to play guitar. I'm 53. It might not happen. It's got to. I wanted it to be like the the side story of this documentary. Of you learning how to play guitar. Well, I said to some, one of the friends, you know, a professional, I said, uh, you know, if I did... 50% of or 10% of what I put into this documentary practicing I'd be a hell of a guitar player yeah he said yeah but you'd be out of work like the rest of us yeah <laughs> so, so whatever. but you got your old man's guitars or what yeah there's still a few of them home yeah yeah uh, so nice. I still try alright well thanks thank Danny you, it's great I really talking. appreciate it it's great thank it's great. you great. All right, that's our show, folks. Thank you for listening. Since Denny and I spoke, I wanted to tell you this, and after 18 years in production, there is finally a distributor that wants to release the film. They're targeting a release date in 2015, so we'll keep in touch with Denny and let you know how that progresses. Go to WTFPod.com and get that app and upgrade to that premium app. Stream all the episodes. Thank you for listening. Watch Marin tonight to watch me uh, relive one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Thank you for bearing witness. Thank you for being there today, especially today. I think I unburdened myself. I don't know. The heart's a funny thing. The mind's a funny thing. But uh, that's about it, though. I don't think there's anything else that uh, I haven't really talked to you guys about. God damn. Life is a fucking trip, man. Boomer lives!